What is going on, mere mortals? My name is John Solo, and this is the Messed Up Origins Podcast, the show where I break down the not-so-kid-friendly backstories behind the movies and fairy tales you know from childhood. Today, we're taking some inspiration from my favorite Disney movie of all time, Hercules, and exploring the mythology behind the Fates. For those who haven't seen it in a while, the Fates play a small but extremely important role in the movie which is actually how I describe their role in real mythology. In addition to cutting the thread of life and ending people's time here on Earth one by one, they also have the power to see the past, present, and future. And after being coerced by Hades, they use this power to reveal the potential outcomes of his plan to take over Mount Olympus, basically giving him a heads up that if Hercules fights, he's totally screwed. This interaction sets the movie's plot in motion, and we don't hear from them again until the very end when they try to cut Hercules' life thread after he's leveled up to god status. But as is always the case when Disney gets a hold of some intellectual property, or in this case, an entire culture, they left a lot of things out. Truth be told, the Fates, also known as their proper name, the Moirai, are kind of badasses. Sure, they're ugly and gross, but their divine power far exceeded that of the Olympians and was even comparable to Zeus himself. You're gonna see exactly what I'm talking about in just a few moments, but first, you might wanna give the podcast a follow and five-star rating because the Fates actually told me that anyone who does will be blessed with a puppy on their next birthday so you should at least consider it. But without further ado, I present to you the messed up origins of the Fates. Chapter 1, Moirai Mythology So like usual, let's start with the very basics of Moirai mythology and build our way up. You can think of the Moirai as the goddesses of fate who personified the destiny of men. They used their enchanted thread of life to assign to every person born the role that he or she would play in the overarching story of our world. From the mightiest of heroes to the lowliest of peasants, everyone was subject to their will, even the gods, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. Now there were three fates in total, Lachesis, Clotho, and Atropos, and each of them had different responsibilities powers. Lachesis, who in the movie is the tallest of the three with blue skin and a long pointed nose, is also known as the allotter or the disposer of lots. She was responsible for measuring out the thread that would indicate how long a person lived and assigning them their identity. Clotho, the one with the green skin who Hades max on, she's the spinner. She actually makes the thread after her sister Lachesis has measured it. And last but not least, we have Atropos. She's known as the inflexible, the one who cannot be turned. She's responsible for cutting the thread when a person's time on this planet is up. Now in the movie, these sisters claim to know everything, literally. We know everything. See, each of them has a realm of expertise, whether it's the past, present, or future, and they're fully aware of what happens in their respective domains. We actually didn't find anything in our research that matched that specifically, but it was said that each of them have an incredible amount of control over the events of the universe and were equally aware of what could happen in every possible timeline. The movie's visual representation of these broads is pretty accurate though. They definitely didn't all share a single eye that they literally could rip out of each other's faces. That little detail was actually inspired by these Greek witches called the Graii, but in most portrayals, they're shown and described as nasty old ladies. There are some sources that refer to them as lame as well. And I don't mean lame in the same way that vests are lame. I mean like physically handicapped. So basically, all these old crones could do was make and cut thread, which in my head is a symbolic design choice. Like they could have been portrayed as beautiful young women and there's some art that depicts them that way, but to me it makes more sense that those responsible for designing the lives of others would be past the point of being able to live a life of their own. What I find really interesting about the fates though is that because they exist outside of the power structure that the Olympians and other deities operate in, 
we aren't actually sure how powerful they are compared to the other gods. We know that some of the Olympians, mostly Zeus, could influence their decisions, but there's more than one example of the Moirai giving rules to the gods or even assigning their fates. For example, they were responsible for Zeus's marriages to both Themis and Hera. They assigned the goddess Artemis the responsibility of coming to the aid of women giving birth. They made the rule that you can't leave the underworld if you've eaten food from there, which as you might recall, totally screwed over our girl Persephone. And Athena was a virgin for life because the fates deemed it so. It's funny when you hear all that because you think the Olympians would be willing to stand up to some raggedy old hags who can barely move, but they were surprisingly intimidating foes, outside of the whole being able to control your entire destiny thing, and you would not want them on your bad side. In fact, there's more than one instance where they played a pivotal role in defending Mount Olympus and keeping Zeus's reign secure when it was challenged. In Apollodorus's Bibliotheca, he says they fought in the Gigantomachy, the event that inspired Hades' plan in the movie where he unleashed the Titans on Mount Olympus. Apparently, they did more than just fight though, they whipped out some big bronze maces and killed two giants with them. Pretty impressive for a group of gals that have to use those automated chairs to go up the stairs, huh? In a different myth, they come to Zeus's aid when Olympus is under attack by Typhon, a creature so terrifying that most of the Olympians fled to Egypt while he was kicking down their front gates. Instead of running away, the fates outsmarted the beast by telling him to eat a piece of fruit that would boost up his powers, when in reality, it either weakened him or did nothing at all, depending on the version. Whichever one you want to go with, their little prank gave Zeus enough time to gather up his strength and put a stop to Typhon's reign of terror. Now you might be wondering, since the fates were at least as powerful as the Olympians, did the ancient Greeks worship them? Well, the short answer is not really. There were temples and altars dedicated to them and the fates could be praised by someone who felt like they had been blessed in some way, but there were no religious practices dedicated to their honor. That being said, their wisdom and knowledge was sought after by plenty. We've discussed multiple stories where heroes, villains, and kings visited oracles to receive guidance when making tough decisions about the road ahead. In addition to expressing the will of the gods, those oracles shared the will of the fates and kept people on their path to fulfill their destiny, whether that was a good one or not. But there were more members of the Moirai's entourage than the oracles. There was also two terrifying creatures known as the Furies and the Kyries that personified the different forms of death. Starting with the Furies, because we've touched on them before, they were the three goddesses of vengeance and retribution who punished the men who violated the natural order. If you killed someone, offended the gods, disrespected your parents, or committed perjury, either the fates or even the person you wronged could curse you with a visit from the Furies, which could lead to you being tormented with madness or illness. The Furies were depicted as ugly winged women with hair, arms, and waists entwined with poisonous serpents. They wielded whips and were clothed either in the long black robes of mourners or the short length skirts and boots of huntresses. Now the Furies' counterpart, the Kyries, were very similar but were the female spirits of violent death. That means death in battle, by accident, being murdered, or ravaged by disease. Basically, all the ways that you don't want to die. The Kyries were depicted as fanged women with talons who dressed in bloody garments. They would hang around battlefields, waiting impatiently for the onslaught to ensue, and then would approach the dead and dying with the intention of ripping out their souls and feasting on their flesh. Imagine that. You're laying on the battlefield with half your guts hanging out. You think, wow, this sucks, but at least I'm dying a warrior's death. That's something I can be at peace with. Then out of nowhere, these hideous vampire looking bitches swarm on you and start tearing your body apart with their teeth. 
What a way to go. It's worth noting here that Thanatos, the personification of non-violent death, isn't listed as part of their posse. But do you know who is? Ilithia, the goddess of childbirth and midwifery. I know, it sounds kind of odd at first, but the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. The poet Pindar credits Ilithia with being responsible for creating the world's offspring. So without her, the fates wouldn't have any destinies to mold. Only Atropos would still have a job because she's the one who cuts the thread at the end of a person's life. And I imagine she would get pretty bored being the only one working anymore and start cutting away before people's time is up, which is a pretty terrifying thought. Anyway, thanks for your service, Ilithia. Chapter 2, Myths and Origins I think it's pretty clear by now that the Fates are unique deities, even for Greek mythology. They have godly powers and immortal life. To a certain extent, they can control the other deities without having to face their wrath. If they were able to enjoy the other parts of god life, like getting drunk and getting laid, you'd think they were the ones running the show. It makes you wonder though, where the hell did they come from? Did they have parents or did the cosmos just fart them out of its giant space butt? Well, there's a few possibilities. One that we talked about in my episode about the Greek creation myth is that they were born from the union of Nyx, the personification of night, and Erebus, the embodiment of deep darkness and shadows, or in some cases, just Nyx. But the other option that seems to be more common is that Zeus and Themis were their parents, which is weird because according to some poets, the fates orchestrated both of Zeus's marriages. I guess in that timeline, their parents would have had to have been Nyx and Erebus. That being said, Zeus being their father would explain why he's one of the few Olympians they'll actually listen to every once in a while, and why they were willing to defend Mount Olympus on the two occasions that he was closest to being dethroned. Now, when it comes to the myths the Moirai are featured in, there's actually only a few, but even those myths don't center around them. Most of the time, they're just quietly orchestrating the story's events from the background or setting the plot in motion. That being said, we did manage to find find one myth that I think is an interesting portrayal of their powers. It follows a boy named Meliager, who is actually cursed by the fates immediately after he was born in a way that reminds me of Sleeping Beauty when Princess Aurora received her gifts from the fairies when suddenly Maleficent showed up. Apparently all three of them appeared before Meliager's mom with gifts. Lachesis gave him a gentle, noble mind, Clothos gave him a brave heart, and Atropos gave her a block of wood saying he would live as long as the wood wasn't destroyed. There's another version though where they don't give him gifts and instead just say, your baby's only gonna live as long as this block of wood does before immediately throwing it in a fire. I kind of like that one more because it's funnier. Whichever one you want to go with, Meliager's mother, Queen Althea, took the burning wood and doused it in water and then hid it where no one could find it. Meanwhile, her son grew up to be the hero of her and her husband's kingdom, Celadon. Doesn't Celadon sound like a town in Pokemon? Is it a town in Pokemon? One year to give thanks for an exceptionally successful harvest, his father, King Enus, threw a festival to celebrate all of the rural gods. They thanked Dionysus, the god of wine, Demeter, the goddess of agriculture, basically everyone except for Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, and she was not happy. To get her revenge on the house of Enus, she sent a massive wild boar with an endless rage and thirst for destruction to cause chaos in Celadon. It destroyed crops, killed cattle and people. The residents of the kingdom had no choice but to move away. This is when Meliager put together a band of warriors all determined to attain glory. That band consisted of a few notable heroes like Jason and Theseus, but the most important members are Meliager's uncles and the female hunter, Atalanta. Basically what happens is the group tracks down the boar, Atalanta draws first blood, and Meliager kills the boar by piercing its heart with his spear, which earns him the head, tusks, and pelt as prizes. However, because Atalanta injured it first, and because she was really cute, Meliager offered her the 
trophies of the hunt instead, but his uncles didn't like that. They end up trying to take them from Atalanta, but Meleager comes to her defense and kills all of his uncles, which infuriates his mother when she finds out. She responds by taking that old block of wood the fates had connected to his soul and throws it in a fire, which kills him in a most painful way. Then, filled with sorrow for what she had just done, Queen Althea takes her own life by running a sword through her stomach. Now remember, this has all been the doing of Artemis, who wanted to destroy the house of Ennius. And with Althea's suicide, the goddess was just about satisfied, but as one last act of revenge, she punished the women mourning Meliager's death by transforming them into guinea hens. <laughs> and to think that all of these dominoes fell because the fates cursed Meliager on the day he was born. One thing I do wanna add though, is that Heracles actually met Meliager when he was in the underworld completing his final labor. And you're not gonna believe this, but Meliager told Heracles to marry his sister Deonyra when he returned to the mortal plane. And Deonyra is the one who ends up unintentionally killing Heracles when she gives him the poison tunic. That bit isn't connected to the fates at all, but when I read it, I got really excited. So I thought you'd find it interesting too. Thank you all for tuning in to the Messed Up Origins podcast. We're posting episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So don't forget to sacrifice the five-star and follow buttons to the algorithm gods to make sure they bless your feed with more mythological and folklore content. If you have any thoughts on this episode you'd like to share, like if you really enjoyed it or are dying to correct my pronunciation of something, hit me up under the Messed Up Origins handles on Twitter and Instagram. And to those who are craving more Messed Up Origins, feel free to check out other episodes episodes of the podcast or look up my YouTube channel called John Solo to experience the original episodes complete with visual aids and custom made artwork. Until next time, Solo fam, my name is John Solo and don't forget, John shot first. <laughs>